So if you weren't here last week, uh, we were picking back up with the study of Revelation, picking back up in chapter 4. And if you were here, you know that we didn't get all the way through uh, chapter 4 as planned. Uh, so we will pick back up there today and then move on to chapter 5. Um, chapter 4, and well, before we get started too, let me, uh, there's a very, very good chance we will be back in the chapel next Sunday. So be sure to not block or delete texts and emails before you read them. Uh, so yes, there is a extraordinarily good chance that this will be the last week we're meeting up here. So, um, so yeah, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation uh, could actually be one chapter together. Um, it is the same uh, vision of John. So as we transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5, you'll see uh, that there is no break. It is John's vision of the worship of the Father on the throne and the Son that we'll see in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, we see that those who are present in heaven, the heavenly host, the angels, and the saints of heaven, the redeemed, are worshiping. They are worshiping God the Father in His glory that we looked at last week. Today we'll look at their worship for His holiness and His worthiness. Worshiping the Son of God, the Lamb that was slain, to redeem sinful man, the lamb that is worthy. That's what we see in chapters 4 and chapter 5. So, if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to read Revelation 4 and 5. Chapter 4 and 5. I am reading from the ESV. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went back and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we rejoice in awe at the vision that John had. Lord, this vision of a scene of worship of God the Father and God the Son. Lord, an indescribable beauty and glory. Lord, help us to understand what we need to know from this. Help us to see uh, that you are worthy of our worship and praise. And Lord, uh, be with us as we dig into your word. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, uh, in chapter 4, we looked back at the Old Testament and the visions of the throne and the visions of God uh, that had spanned 15, 1,600 years. From the time of Moses that we saw in Exodus 24, uh, through Isaiah's vision and Ezekiel's vision and Daniel's vision uh, that were all given to them. And we saw that the place that they had visions of, this throne room of Almighty God, was the same place, the same thing that John saw. From that, we know and understand and we can trust that the Scriptures are true, uh, that, that heaven is a real place, uh, that Christ has gone before us to prepare a place for us. Um, it gives us confidence in the Scriptures. It solidifies our hope in Christ, uh, that He will make a home for us with Him. It confirms that our citizenship is more than just some abstract thing. Our citizenship in heaven is real, our citizenship in Christ. We discussed who the 24 elders were and the varying possibilities, right? Um, we discussed that uh, the cherubim uh, are likely uh, the four living creatures and what their four faces likely represent, right? The 24 elders, uh, in my opinion, opinion of other scholars, is that uh, they are redeemed saints. Uh, they are uh, representative of the church. Uh, they are not angels. We, the four living beings seem to be cherubim, uh, and that their four faces somehow uh, likely represent God's creation in its fullness. Um, we can't be dogmatic about who the 24 elders are or what the four living creatures represent, uh, but we can be dogmatic about what we see them doing and who we see them worshiping. And that is a holy, mighty, glorious, worthy God. We looked at that first aspect of worship, the worship of God for his glory. Uh, his glory was displayed in the incredible and almost indescribable beauty emanating from his throne. Diamonds, rubies, emeralds, crystal, sapphire, precious stones, representative of his purity and righteousness. And that's where we're going to pick up today as we look at the worship of God for his holiness and for his worthiness. These are the reasons we, why we see the elders and the four living beings worshiping. So, they worship God for his holiness because he is holy. The four living creatures cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John says they never cease to say repeatedly over and over, holy, holy, holy. This God, God the Father, who was, who is, who is to come, uh, the great I am, is holy. He was holy, he is holy, he will always be holy. So what does it mean to be holy? This is the interactive portion of the lesson. Without sin. Without sin. <coughs> worthy of veneration. Worthy of... Oh. <laughs> worthy of veneration. Oh, okay. I put that up there. Yeah, that's... There you oh, go. It's up there too. That's, uh, 
I was like, Did it, are my notes displaying? It's been a while. I, when, I, when I'm preparing, I don't look at the slides. I look at the notes. So I did that like a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a definition from Thayer's Dictionary, uh, that it is worthy of veneration. What is, what's veneration, Austin? Praise. Praise. To ascribe honor to. Uh, to ascribe honor to. Very good. Uh, yeah. Uh, one author said that holiness is incomparable majesty. Pure. Sinless, to Henry's point. Upright. Um, holiness. Uh, I love this definition. It is the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. We sung earlier about how great the chasm right? Because God is holy and we are not. There is this almost infinite chasm between who we are and who he is. He is holy. John MacArthur says, holiness is the summation of all that God is. It's the only attribute of God that we see repeated in this threefold manner. Holy, holy, holy. That's actually a literary device that was common in Hebrew and Greek um, to show emphasis. It's the only attribute we see emphasized in the scripture. God is holy, holy, holy. It's the best description of God. God is holy. Holiness is difficult for us to comprehend because we are not holy. We are not holy. Holiness is what sets God apart from all other created beings. His holiness. The cherubim are covering themselves. Notice how in those, in those visions, when, when they're in the presence of God, they are covering their faces. Why? Because God is holy. When we see people in worship of God, they are on their faces. Why? Because He is holy. That is the only response of a sinful, uh, unholy being in the presence of a holy God. To cover themselves. So what are some things that we see in the scriptures that tell us about God and His holiness? Vast things. We'll talk about just four brief scriptures that I'll share. First, in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer, no one is holy like God. Psalm 96, 6 tells us to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. That's what we see happening here in this scene in heaven, to worship the Lord for the splendor of holiness. Ezekiel 38, 23, God says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The world is going to know who God is because he's going to display himself in his holiness. Finally, in 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God, the Father, is holy, and he is being worshipped in heaven. The four living creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the omnipotent one, the only one, who is able to mete out the appropriate judgment that is going to be necessary to redeem his creation. That is what the scene is being set for, looking to the future and the outpouring of the wrath of God. Only God is holy. Only he is the appropriate one to do this. You know, and it, uh, it seems almost a shame for one slide and a brief discussion to cover a topic, God's holiness, that entire books have been written about. But that's where we are today. Because he is holy, he should be worshipped. He is the only one who should be worshipped. We need to worship God and him alone because we worship him for his holiness. Next, closing out chapter 4, we see the worship of God the Father because of his worthiness. Because of his worthiness, the 24 elders, in response to the four cherubim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They declare that God is worthy. He is worthy. Remember, we talked last week that uh, three, four hundred years ago, the, the, the word worship uh, had been shortened in it because it was worthship. Worthship was, was reduced. He is, we worship his worthiness. 
Um, they fall down, casting their crowns before him. The idea and the act of casting your crown is an act of submission. Uh, I saw and, and read our uh, former pastor, John Barnett, said uh, that this was an act that we would see uh, a conquered king do. So one kingdom overtakes another kingdom. In the presence of the winning king, the conquered king would bow before him and cast his crown at the feet of that conquering king. King. Uh, the, the word here for cast in the Greek is balo, um, and it means to remove from yourself and eagerly lay down. Um, it is, an, again, an act of submission. Uh, you know, because we are victoriously victorious only through the will of the Father and His work, uh, we respond in worship and thanksgiving to His worthiness. We cast our crown uh, to, at His feet. That is what we see the elders representing the redeemed do. And it's interesting, just like the cherubim, and John said, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the indication here of casting their crowns is also continuous. Those angels, those cherubim are saying, holy, 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 and the elders in their worship are casting their crowns before the feet of God the Father. They cry that God is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. And I'll just admit, those are going to be three attributes that we're going to see uh, here in a little bit, and we'll go into them in a little bit more detail at that point, um, these attributes that we see of God the Father. They cry that He is worthy because He created all things. And because of His will, they exist and were created. Our response to God can be nothing but worship because we are His. He created us, so we belong to Him. There is ownership there. We didn't create ourselves. He created us. Um, it's important to, to view God as worthy. Why? Why is it? Why, and there's a very important reason, and just for the sake of time, I'll answer that question. Because in the context of Revelation, and like I mentioned before, we are on the, the precipice of the outpouring of the wrath of God in a manner that has never been seen before in all creation. That's what's going to begin in chapter 6. We are on the precipice of that. And we have to understand that this is a holy, glorious, worthy God. Because if we don't understand and, and grasp that, it could be temptation to think of God as capricious or cruel or in the, in the wrath that He's going to point, pour out. Um, because we're going to see some horrible things that are happening on, on the earth. And if you don't have an understanding that this is a holy God and, and a righteous, good response to sin and evil, then that, that could be problematic. That could be tempting to think that somehow God is not loving. But He is worthy. And He is the only one worthy. And that is how holy He is. Um, our only response to that has to be worship. So chapter 4 shows us God the Father seated on His throne, in His throne room. He is sovereign. And the response from those present is worship. Worshiping God for His glory, for His holiness, and because His worthiness. And that brings us to chapter 5. And, and, you know, that's probably something that we could have all, most of us, agreed on uh, before we started the lesson that we should worship God uh, for His glory and His holiness and His worthiness. But hopefully uh, we, we understand that in a more profound way now. So again, that brings us into chapter 5. And as I stated earlier... Uh, chapters 4 and 5 really could be one chapter together. And of course, you probably all know, um, if you don't, uh, the chapters and the verses uh, are not inspired. Uh, they, were, uh, they were a creation or an idea of, actually, we, we mentioned an Archbishop of Canterbury last week. Uh, an Archbishop of Canterbury, I, I forget who it was, about 800 years ago, uh, had the idea to put chapters... I think it was like Stephen Nicholson or something. I know his first name is Stephen. Stephen. Archbishop Stephen, um, according to Micah, put the chapters and the verses in, and they're very helpful. It helps us to be able to find uh, references to Scripture. Um, so it's a good thing, but they are not inspired. 
Um, and that's helpful to remember as you study the scriptures. You know, one thing, a side note, if you're studying an epistle um, and, and focusing on a, a passage or, or maybe just a chapter, read the whole thing in its context because it's a letter. The whole thing's a letter. It wasn't broken up into chapters for somebody to read. You know, when it was sent, they'd read it all at once. But it's helpful to understand. It's helpful as you study Revelation to read chapters 4 and 5 together. It is one scene, John's vision of the throne room. But as chapter 5 begins, John's attention is drawn away from the worship of God the Father to what is in the right hand of God. I have to get my left and right. And in the right hand of God is a scroll. A scroll. And from this we see the scroll, the sorrow, the Savior, the song, and the salutations. Austin loves alliterations. I did that just for you. I had to stretch a little bit for the salutations, but we got there. Ultimately, again, in all of this, the focus is worship. And chapter 5, the worship then goes from the worship of God the Father to include the worship of God the Son, the Lamb of God. So John's attention is drawn to this scroll, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, written on the inside and the outside in the hand of God. So what you're trans depending upon your translation, that word for scroll may say book. Um, but 95 AD, um, it's in, in the way that it is sealed, uh, we should think of this as a scroll, probably similar um, to what is depicted in that photo. Uh, a seven-sealed scroll in the first century would be a fairly common document. Wills, deeds, contracts were all scrolls that were sealed. And the more seals a document had, uh, was a, gave, the more seals, it was more important. Um, so this is a seven-sealed scroll. Um, and it is written on the inside and the outside. Um, that's... Opinions vary on that, but it's likely, and, and the, as usually was the case, uh, the details of the contract were on the inside of the scroll. It was rolled and sealed, and on the outside of the scroll was a summary of what the scroll contained. Um, we don't know for sure because John doesn't tell us what he saw and what was actually written on the scroll. Um, and as this is my weekly offer, that as to what the scroll contains, opinions vary. Uh, from scholar to scholar. Those arguments range from it's the book of life uh, that all the names of the, of the redeemed are in to the new covenant um, to the title deed of the universe. And there are varying degrees of compelling arguments uh, for and against uh, some of those things. But there, again, are opinions. My opinion, many scholars uh, in my study, um, that I believe that this contains God's future plan for the judgment of the world and how he is going to redeem his cursed creation. And that is what's contained in the scroll. Um, it is not a record of the past. It is what is going to happen in the future. It is his plan. God promised that he would judge sin and Satan from the very beginning. The moment the earth was cursed, when Adam and Eve sinned, God, as he, as he lays out that curse in Genesis 3, he says that he would... From the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, bruise the head of the serpent in some translation. That is a, the first mention of Christ in the Bible um, in Genesis 3. Um, God had a plan to redeem the earth and to punish sin from the very beginning. Um, Ezekiel 2 also gives a, a picture of what's in this scroll. In Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10, the prophet writes, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So that lines up with the idea that this is God's future plan for judgment. Because for many, that plan will be lament and woe. But uh, Dr. MacArthur points out in his commentary that it's not just a contract for doom and judgment because it also has, a, it has in it redemption. It is God's plan to redeem creation for Christ to return to this earth like he promised. So as we contemplate and study the worship taking place in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, we must 
remember and have and know what is coming that needs to be in, as part of our, our thoughts and our study of this. What is coming is the again the outpouring of wrath. And this wrath is going to begin when these seals begin to be opened. And that's going to start in chapter 6. If God willing, we'll be back there in March, um, picking up in, in Revelation 6. The wrath begins when the seals are broken. So any discussion of what this scroll contains needs to have some connection with the judgment of God and His wrath. But not just the judgment and wrath, but also His redemption of creation to be restored for eternity. That's the good news. That's the scroll. So next we see the sorrow. So a strong angel, and we don't know what angel exactly. Some say it's Gabriel. Some people say it's Michael. But John doesn't tell us who he is. So we can't know. And it's really, in my mind, futile to guess. And this angel asks a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And then we see the answer in chapter 3. No one. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth is able, is worthy to open the scroll. That phrase, and we're going to see it again at the end of the chapter, no one in heaven or on earth or on the earth, is simply a, a means of describing all creation. It's not signifying or classifying three different groups of people. It's just a way to say there's nothing in creation that is worthy to open this scroll. What is John's response to this realization that no one is able to open the scroll? He weeps loudly. And that's an interesting phrase because the Greek term there just for weeping is a loud vocal display of grief. But he doesn't just leave it there. He adds an adjective on it, you know, that adjective of greatly, which gives us it's an intense, loud, vocal, wailing, emotional response. Uh, he is openly distraught over the fact that there is no one worthy to open the scroll. And that further solidifies in my mind the contents of the scroll. Because if that document contains the plan, not just for God to judge sin, but to redeem creation, the plan for Christ to come again. And John knows, because Christ told him face to face, I'm coming back, I'm returning. But there's, now, there's no one worthy to initiate this plan. John is beside himself as we would be. But, fortunately for us, the story doesn't end there. There is one who is worthy. There is a someone, capital S, who is worthy to break the scroll. And that one is the Savior. One of the 24 elders goes to John and tells him to stop weeping. Stop weeping. There is one who is worthy. The Lion of Judah the root of David is worthy. He has overcome the Savior of the world. So how do we know that this Lion of Judah is the Savior? Well, that term, Lion of Judah, comes from Genesis 49. If you remember the, the story where Isaac, or excuse me, not Isaac, Jacob, um, a.k.a. Israel, is about to die. He is blessing, he's pronouncing a blessing on his 12 sons. This is what he says to his son Judah. We see it in Genesis 49, 8 through 10. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Again, Jacob blessing his son Judah. It's a prophecy that one from Judah's line would rule and establish his kingdom forever. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Savior. How do we know that the Savior is the root of David? Well, that idea of the root of David goes back to Isaiah 11. And in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, it says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The shoot, this root, the stem of Jesse, the root of David, will have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he will judge with righteousness and fairness, and he will strike the wicked. That root is Jesus Christ, the Savior, the root of David. So how did the Savior overcome? This is one that you probably all know the answer to. Christ, can't read my own right. Christ came, sorry, how did I not catch that? That is typed very poorly. I'm not even sure what I was trying to say. Jesus Christ is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to set God's plan in motion because He overcame. He overcame. And what does it mean when he, we say that He overcame? He defeated death. We just sang about that too if you were in the first service. He died, but He rose. You remember back in chapter 1 as Jesus is, is de describing Himself to John in this vision, He says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. He, is, he defeated death. Um, great testimony of Peter in Acts 2. Uh, Peter declares, But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He defeated death. He overcame. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ overcame. He defeated death. He is worthy. So this lamb, or excuse me, I'm not this lion of Judah, this root, um, is this Lamb of God. So John you know, turns his attention from the, the elder who is explaining that there's one worthy, and you would think he's expecting to see what? A lion, maybe? He says a lion, you know, the lion of Judah, but no, he does not see a lion. He sees a lamb as if it was slain. A lamb as if it was slain, but standing. And that word there for slain is a word that means uh, mortally and violently wounded. Um, it was the scars that he bore on the cross for us. Um, and we see him, it's best to think of him, and you know, people really get into the weeds with a lot of this stuff, and I think when you get into the weeds, you miss the point of what's going on, which is worship and, and who, uh, who we're worshiping. Uh, but Christ is next to the Father on the throne, and it's best to think of the surrounded in concentric circles by the cherubim than by the elders, and as we're going to see in a minute, uh, the heavenly hosts of heaven, the angels. This lamb is not dead. He looks like he's dead. He looks like he should be dead, but he is not. He is standing. He is alive. What do you think of, uh, in, in terms of the scriptures, when you think of a lamb? Where do we see a lamb? Yeah, the, uh, the Passover lamb, right? The sacrifice. And, and that is what is in view here. The lamb of God, it represents a sacrifice. Um, one scholar noted the following about this lamb that was slain and what he represents. The lamb that was slain is the eternal witness that Christ became flesh and dwelled among us. The lamb that was slain reveals why he came to be a sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for many. The lamb that was slain is proof that he died for us to save sinners. His blood paid the penalty for our sins, for our forgiveness. It's evidence that he knows our pain. It should remind us that because he came and he dwelled among us and 
lived and, and died for us, that he knows our pain and our struggles. And the lamb that was slain shows that he triumphed over death. He looks like he should be dead, but he's not. He is alive. A 20th century, in the early 20th century, um, he had a well-known radio ministry and uh, wrote a lot of good books, Dr. Donald Barnhouse. Um, he noted this, there are four things out of place right now in the universe. The church should be in heaven. Israel should be enjoying peace in the land that was promised to them. Satan deserves to be in the lake of fire. And then finally, I don't even remember the fourth one. I was doing well. Um, Christ belongs on his throne reigning. But those four things right now are out of place. At this point, once these scroll and these seals on this scroll begin to be opened, God's plan is moving those four things where they belong. And that is because the Lamb overcame. He is worthy to open this scroll. There is only one worthy. You know, the Bible tells us that judgment has been given to Christ. In John 5, 21 through 23, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to those whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And again, I think this supports the idea that this scroll, this contract contains the plan to judge sin and redeem believers. And Christ is the only one worthy. He is the lamb that was slain that became a sacrifice for our sin. This lamb has seven horns. And typically horns in the Bible represent power. So seven horns meaning the omnipotence of Christ. He is all-powerful, demonstrating his authority. This lamb also had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So we see this, this idea, this, this vision again. It's like the third or fourth time. What The seven spirits of God represents what? The Holy Spirit, that idea of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit was present before the throne. We saw that last week. The Holy Spirit is present on Christ. All four Gospels record that when Christ was baptized, the people saw the Holy Spirit de descend on him like a dove. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that is a picture of those full of eyes as his omnis uh, omniscience, all-knowing, perfect, complete knowledge. This omniscient, omnipotent lamb that was slain who overcame is worthy to take the scroll and to open it. He's worthy to enact this plan of judgment and redemption. He and no one else. Jesus Christ, the Savior, is worthy to open the scroll. And that brings us to the worship. The worship. In response, the four cherubim and the 24 elders sing a new song in worship of Christ. If you ever needed more proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, here it is. They are worshiping the Lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. It says that they have harps, which are represented in, often in the Psalms especially, uh, accompanying our praise and our worship, accompanying songs. So this is a song being sung. It says that they had bowls of incense, uh, which are the prayers. And that was common in the, as part of the temple sacrifices. They would burn incense, and it was representative of prayers being lifted up to God, to heaven. That is what is part of this song. It's interesting. These prayers um, are the prayers for vindication. They're the prayers for Christ to return to judge sin. Prayers for God to judge evil. Uh, those prayers that have been offered for centuries, perhaps some of us maybe even prayed one of those prayers this morning. This is a picture of those prayers beginning to be answered which is reason for great praise and worship. They cry out in song, Worthy are you. You were slain. Christ was crucified for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It said that you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. His blood was the payment. 
and depending upon your translation, it may say purchased, and maybe it says redeemed, uh, but it possibly may say ransomed. Um, it was a term used to describe the purchase of a slave. We were slaves to sin. Christ bought us off of that auction block with his blood, and we become his. It's a, it's a term that symbolizes ownership. You were purchasing something to make it your personal property. If you have believed on Christ, been born again, he uh, is now your master. You are his. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You know, the saints of heaven are made up of all peoples, men, women, black, white, red, yellow, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. The foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We will all be there. There is zero reason for any kind of prejudice. You know, we are all guilty sinners saved by the blood of Christ. They sing praise because it says that he made them a kingdom and priests and they will reign. That may sound familiar. That was a promise offered to a couple of the churches that if they would endure, that their reward would be that they would become a kingdom and priests and reign eternally with him. Christ is worthy of worship. He's worthy because he is the holy eternal God that humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, defeated death, overcame. He purchased us with his blood. Just like the 24 elders and just like the four cherubim that worship him, we too should worship him for what he has done, for his purchase of us. That is why they worship. That is why we worship. Which finally brings us to the salutations. Because next it tells us that the heavenly hosts proclaim, but it makes a point of saying that they say and not sing. So this is spoken praise from their lips. And I say heavenly host because the text tells us that it was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. It's a picture of what we saw last week, if you remember, in Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 7.10 said that thousands upon thousands were serving him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. That is what we're seeing here, that same picture that Daniel saw. That term myriad in the Greek it expresses an innumerable multitude an unlimited number. So for him to say myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands is not an attempt to count. What he's telling us is there were more than you can imagine. It was a number that cannot be counted, which gives me chill bumps to think about that this scene in heaven, more angels than you could ever count, more angels than the stars in the sky, speaking this praise of God, proclaiming, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, might, wisdom, excuse me, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Some of those same attributes that we saw ascribed to God the Father in chapter 4. That word power uh, is inherent strength residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. Just because he is God, he has power. Uh, that word is used throughout the scriptures, that root, for miracles. So when you think of miracles, it's power, the power of Christ. Riches is fairly self-explanatory. Wisdom is supreme knowledge, omniscience. Might is just another synonym for strength, perfect strength, the omnipotence. Honor is a word, it's the reverence that you have for something because of its position, its preeminence. He is worthy because he is preeminent. He honor. Glory the, is the Greek word doxa. It's from what we get doxology. Uh, glory be to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Ghost. Um, it is splendor and majesty and exalted state. And then finally, blessing is just praise. These seven attributes of Christ that they speak out, he is worthy. Um, John MacArthur says these things demand our praise because Christ is all these things. He can't be anything but these things. Um, he is worthy uh, to be praised. The angels, seemingly all of the angels in heaven, praise Christ, the Lamb of God sent to save. All of them are praising the worthiness of Christ, that he is worthy to open this scroll. 
But the worship doesn't stop there. There's yet another salutation that we see. Everything ever created proclaims proclaims and, and cries out in praise and worship of God. It's the same phrase that we saw earlier, that every created thing in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and the sea responds in worship of the Father, seated on the throne. They proclaim blessing, honor, glory, dominion to God. And we've talked about those. You know, The, the term dominion is another uh, meaning strength. It's just another adjective for strength and power. Um, it is exclusively used in the scriptures to describe God. Uh, the the uh, omnipotent power of God. It's interesting that the attributes of Christ are the attributes of the Father. Why? Because they are one. They are one. You know, Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." Whatever's true of Christ um, in terms of his attributes is true of God the Father. So, as I was preparing this week. Um, a thought occurred to me. Because, as we talked last week, we're seeing this as a future scene. We're seeing this that the rapture has occurred. Okay? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, past history. At some point, between the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, the rapture of the church takes place. And then what we're seeing now is prophecy. If we assume that that is true, and that is what we teach and believe at Calvary, in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the church is raptured before the tribulation, the tribulation is going to start at the beginning of chapter 6. This scene, if you're a believer in Christ, it includes you. It includes me. We are in that group praising God which is a really cool thought. This is a picture of the future. All things created, praising God, because we're either going to die before the rapture occurs, or the rapture is going to bring us to heaven, and we'll be a part of this scene. Now, you know, I can't give you a written guarantee of that, um, but that's, that is likely the case, which is really cool to think about. We will likely be in heaven at that point, and... This is a future scene of worship. We will be a part of that worship scene. Uh, you, me, countless others. If, if you believe. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Doctor, if you were in the first service, Dr. Grisanti gave a wonderful invitation. You know, the question is, will you be there? Everybody won't be. The people that we see each and every day, they will not all be a part of that group. And it's an important time to consider that question. Am I going to heaven? Will I be there? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior? Not some Jesus that's made up but the Jesus Christ that we see in the Bible that we've been talking about as we've been studying Revelation, the Jesus Christ that the cherubim and the elders and the angels are worshiping, the lamb that was slain who purchased us with his blood. Are you believing on that, Jesus? Have you placed your trust and faith in him as the only one who can save you, the only one who can give you forgiveness of sins? If you have made that profession of faith, if that is you, then you can rejoice and we should worship because of that. But make sure that you're going to be a part of this scene. Just as Dr. Grisanti said, if you're not sure, if you're uncertain, if you don't trust that and know that, or if maybe you know for sure, no, I am not, today would be the day to settle that. And if that's where you are, you know, come grab me after class, grab Austin, uh, somebody, and tell them you want to make sure that you are in this scene. You want to make sure that you are in heaven. This worship service, for lack of a better word, concludes with the cherubim repeating amen. Amen in response to everything that has been said and saying about Jesus Christ and God the Father. Amen simply meaning so be it. This is true. Nothing is more true than what has been sung and said 
about God the Father and Jesus Christ. All of these reasons that God is worthy, His holiness, that the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll, to set the, the plan in motion, to judge sin, to pour out the wrath of God, and to redeem His cursed creation. Only Christ is worthy to do that. The only response is worship. Amen. We worship because the Father and the Son are worthy. So that brings us, hopefully, to some questions. So what? What do we do with this? How can we apply any of this to day-to-day life? So the first question, how does or can a proper understanding of God help us reconcile the wrath of God and the judgment to come with the goodness of God? God is just. Can you expand on that? had to do something about the sin. He couldn't just be like, oh yeah, you can come in anyway. You know, so that's sort of the justice part. Right, and that's the connection to his holiness, right? Because he is holy, he has to judge sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy. Other thoughts? How does that help us reconcile those two? This And... If you've never read it or studied it, stay tuned, keep reading, because the rest of Revelation depicts the wrath of God that is unseen anywhere else in Scripture. Um, And if you don't understand that God is just, that He is holy, that He has every right to judge sin, and that He is good to judge sin, then there, there's danger there. That, that's, that's how a lot of people end up with God can't be good if He sends someone to hell um, because they don't understand the holiness of God, the worthiness of God. Speaking of that holiness, so what should our response of the holiness of God be? How should that impact how we live our life every day? With reverence. Response in Revelation is worship. And so we show a sense of that worship is our primary response to the character of who God is, the nature of his holiness. Worship. So, you know, if you were in first service, we worship in song, right? We worship in prayer, worship in the preaching of the word. How do how do we worship daily life? <laughs> What is, because we don't show up here every day, all day, singing, praying, listening, or preaching. What does worship day to day look like? Reverence. Doing everything for the glory of God. Okay. Give us an example. 
and the way you you interact with other people just points to the way Christ interacts with the church. Okay. One example. Hmm. Yes. Okay. There was in there. Yeah, Leviticus talks about be holy because I the Lord God am holy. So the word holiness prompts our own personal holiness. Also states that in First Peter one sixteen. Yeah. You know, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Be perfect. Your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high bar. We can only do that because we've trusted in Christ, who then transforms us. It's only through His power. I think we heard a message about that recently. Uh, we can only do that through His power in us. Um, you know, when I and I think of work, appreciation of His creation. You know, as you see a sunrise, a sunset, as you see a landscape, it's, you know, if you see, you know, the beauty of an equation for engineers, you know, and, and, and the the order, oh, that, that was for you, man. It's true. It's God, give, giving God glory, you know, the thought that that is of God, um, that it's not just random is a way that we can worship him. And this kind of bleeds into the next question. You know, God created us and we exist only through his will. You know, how does, how does that truth help us? How does that truth impact us? How should it impact day to day? Is there a purpose? God created me and I exist because of his will. That truth helps me because it answers one of those biggest questions. I'm here, you know, for God's will. Well, that's God's will. And then we can, you know, dig into God's work. God's will. Patience. You know, I would um, follow him. That's good. Definitely. Purpose. I think that he's willing that we will eventually reach the throne room soon, hmm. like you were talking about. And so I think it's possible. And I'm just kind of hope to know that Lord's will is that I will be worshiping him face to face one day. And we can look forward to that and like keep it, you know, firmly fixed that this is the end goal and this is the purpose that God's created like that. Yeah. And you know, the hope is powerful. You know, and if you boil it down to God's sovereignty in your life, that everything that's happening, the stuff that you think is good, the stuff that you think is bad, the stuff that you think is horrible, God is using all of that for His purposes. And when our hope is in that throne room, and not on everything falling into place and being great here on earth, when our hope is in that throne room and in the one who's worthy, we can that sustains us. And, and we understand that God's using all that other stuff for his purposes, to grow us, um, to work in our lives, to work in other people's lives. Um, he's using that. Um, but that our hope is, you know, because like Peter said, if uh, not Peter, that Paul said, if our hope is only in this life to come, uh, we are to be pitied. Uh, you know, if, if Christ didn't die, if he is not in that throne room, uh, this is all for naught. We're here wasting our time. Um, but it's not. It's true. It's real. Uh, we have that future hope in that future place in that throne room. So real quick, or not necessarily real quick, but last thing. Um, so moving forward, like I, I mentioned it a couple of times, uh, as we move forward in Revelation, we are going to begin to see 
God pouring out His wrath, the cup of His wrath being poured out in its fullness. We also will see Jesus returning to earth, redeeming His creation, setting up His kingdom. What does that mean for us? How should that change anything about how we're living our lives today? There should be an urgency. There should be an urgency. Not just because, you know, we haven't talked about and probably won't get into, okay, this is coming in 12 months, 3 weeks, 14 days, 7 hours, and 12 minutes. Because we've timed it out because of all these things happening. And we're, we may talk about some current events. And, and But at the end of the day, he's coming soon. And because of how he's coming and what's coming with him, um, the urgency to share the gospel um, should become of supreme importance in our minds um, when we encounter lost people. How else? I think it also prompts that, like, forgive others as you've been forgiven. Like, mm-hmm. if, if, like, your lifetime of sin has been forgiven by Christ, like, letting go of that one insult that someone threw at you or whatever, like, like, it's let go of any, like, kind of anger you have towards other people and, like, also instead reach out to them and, like, kind of show them the goodness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, yeah, I didn't have after of that because I just started a because and didn't have anything for after because. That's good. You got, I've heard it said you're never more like Jesus than when you're forgiving someone. I was just reading um, in Matthew 18 this morning because it's interesting. Um, it's you know Peter asked Jesus, you know, my brother sins against me. How many times should I forgive him? Seven times. And Peter thinks he's being all big. Oh, I'll forgive somebody seven times. And Jesus is like, no. 70 times 7. In other words, every time your brother sins against you, forgive him. Um, And then Jesus goes on and gives the parable of the king who had this massive, unfathomable debt. And the reason it stuck out of my mind is because it was the same kind of turn. The the amount that he owed was like myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. It was an unimaginable sum of money that he owed. right? And the king forgave him, forgave him his debt. What did that guy go do immediately? He found the guy that owed him just a little bit of money and said, pay me, and he didn't have the money, and beat him up and threw him in prison. Right? The point being is because of we, when we recognize how much we've been forgiven, how can we not forgive other people? Um, and yeah, that's, you know, as we see the wrath of God being poured out, um, man, it should bring us to our knees and thanks and praise to God that He has forgiven us, that He provided a way that we could be forgiven. One last, anybody got one last comment? And we'll wrap up. So, like, yeah which there's a plug for go groups to be a part of it because that's what the go groups meet to do meet to pray for lost friends neighbors family and to encourage one another as we attempt to reach them for Christ. Um, I'll, just, I'll close. That reminded me uh, uh, a lesson I taught on Sunday night not too long ago as part of that. If you're familiar with the Penn and Teller, um, Penn Gillette is the big fat guy, um, the one that talks. I think the other one never says anything maybe. But anyway, devout atheist, you know, very vocal 
atheist. He was in New York City one day, and a man gave him a Gideon Bible, one of the Gideons, and shared the gospel with him, um, which prompted him to then come and say, and he said it on a, in a radio interview, and you can find it on YouTube, um, how much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? If we believe that there is only one way to be saved, and that is through the gospel, that Jesus Christ, Son of God, born of the flesh, died on the cross, rose again. If that's what we believe, and we don't tell other people about it, how much do you have to hate them to not share that? Is he wrong? If you had a cure for cancer and you didn't share it with anybody, you knew people that had cancer, and you're like, no, I'm just going to keep it. Are you loving them? It's the most unloving thing that you could do would be to not share Christ with someone. So let that... That's convicting to me. Perhaps it's convicting to you, but uh, um, let's make that be our charge as we leave here today. So I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for the picture that you've given us of how and why we should worship you. The reminder that uh, through the shed blood of the lamb that was slain, uh, we have forgiveness of our sins and that you have made that available um, for all who would come and believe. And Lord, let that be not something that we just, Lord, keep to ourselves um, as we have shared, but Lord, let that uh, stir up in us a sense of urgency, Lord, because your wrath is coming and, and one day soon. Um, Lord, let that stir up in us a fervor and an urgency and a desire um, to share the gospel with the lost world. Um, Lord, uh, I know for me, it's uh, often fear or, Lord, busyness of life um, that makes me not want to go or not want to stop and speak. Um, Lord, help us to overcome all of the sinful, self-centered, prideful reasons uh, that we don't share when you give us opportunities. Uh, God, help us to love other people enough uh, to share the great love that you have shown us. Just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.